0: You're listening to the Queer Yid Podcast, where we share the stories of LGBTQ Jews from religious backgrounds. My name is Hannah Peterson, and today I've got the pleasure of speaking with Jude Rose. Jude lives in London with their three children. They identify as gender non-binary, and their pronouns are they-them. Growing up in Chabad communities in England and in Israel, Jude has gone on a courageous journey of self-discovery, coming to love and embrace all of the facets of their identity. In today's show, Jude and I speak about that journey and about the importance of living life authentically. We hope you enjoy. First of all, thank you so much for joining us and for agreeing to share your story. To start off with, could you tell me a little bit about a young Jude? What what was your life and community like growing up?
1: So I grew up in a place to Leeds, called Leeds till I was 10 years old. My parents are bad shriva, so they became more religious as I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I remember I was really from maybe about five years old where my parents had already started becoming more religious and I wasn't allowed to wear trousers or pants, as they're called in, in American lingo, anymore. <laughs> and I had to like, I think it was my first kind of experience of being really closeted in a way and also very gendered it's like because when you're when you're from and you grow up religious you have to dress like female and I had to wear skirts and cover myself and and it was like very female dress and that was my first real experience I think of like having to be identified as a female even though younger I'm an identical twin and we were often dressed the same in dresses and whatever but For me, wearing trousers was really how I felt comfortable and I wasn't allowed to from when I was about five years old. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So when I was then, when I was 10 years old, my parents moved to Manchester, which is another city in England, because there was no um, religious high school in Leeds. And I went to a school called Broughton Jewish, which is a religious modern orthodox school. And then I went to a school called Jewish High, which is a very religious school, like Beziyafah kind of school. And then when I was 13, my parents made Aliyah mm-hmm. and we moved to Haranov in Yerushalayim. And I went to Bez in um, Bez Khanna Yerushalayim, mm-hmm. which is a Chabad school um, for all my senior years of school.
0: So during that time, um, your parents became religious when you were around five years old, or did that start? before then after like how long did that process take and what was your involvement in it
1: um it was a slow process so I I don't know exactly what age it must have started before I was five it probably started when I was four maybe Mm -hmm. four five six around those years and I don't know that I had much of a process in it apart from I was told that this is what we're doing now so this is what you're going to wear now and then I remember when I got a bit older that we, we had to stop eating khalabakum and this really bothered me because we used to go to my grandparents my grandparents literally lived across like we had a path through our garden into their garden and my grandmother always used to have these amazing chocolates in her cupboards in her house and when my parents stopped us eating khalabakum we weren't allowed to eat these chocolates anymore so I remember that maybe I was eight nine and we were not allowed to um, have khalabakum anymore and then and then I remember my mom going. My mom went to New York to get a bracha from the Rebbe, actually, when she was pregnant with my with my fourth. There's five of us in the family, so when she was pregnant with my with the fourth sibling, and um, and then I remember her coming back and starting to wear a shetel and covering her hair, and um, yeah, and I guess, and then it was we're gonna move we're gonna move to um, to Manchester because there's no from school in Leeds like high school in Leeds, we were in, we were in the Menorah School, which is the Lubavitch School, run by the shluchim, in Leeds, mm-hmm. and that's where I did my formative, real formative years of schooling, um, but I don't remember ever being asked to be part of the journey, it was just a journey that we're taking as a fact, like, mm-hmm. you're, you're going along the journey, we're a family, and we're going to go along with it, I guess. It
0: seems like a lot of the memories that you brought up were memories of sort of of just that, of being brought along, sort of like being told like, okay, now we're we're not in Chalbacom, now we're moving to another place in order for you to go to school. Um, did you, I guess, enjoy being part of the Chabad community um, in Leeds and then in Manchester?
1: So in Leeds, in Leeds, I don't know if, yeah, I think I did enjoy it in Leeds. I mean, we we had a very small group of friends. There was only a few of us in Leeds some were Chabad some were not Chabad but it was the school that it was like a community school yeah and in in Manchester although I didn't go to Chabad school I had some really really close Chabad all my social group was Chabad Mm -hmm. and yeah I did enjoy being part of that community but because they were such lovely families and I got on really well with them and they were really like they were my really close friends so I was and I was very much involved in that community and it yeah, I, I I enjoyed it. Um, when I moved to Israel, I did not enjoy being part of the Chabad community anymore. I um, the Chabad community in Haranov was really interesting for want of a, <laughs> a better word, um, and it was also very. It was very. I don't know what is even a word. It was very, it was very from in a in an Israeli Chabad way that is not the way I grew up in. Like Chabad in England is very different to Israeli Chabad.
0: Yeah. I um I think I had a similar trajectory. Um my my family didn't become religious. I became religious on my own when I was like 12 or 13 through a Chabad school. Um, but I in California and I really loved the community there and I loved the people. And then um I moved to Crown Heights and obviously my like buy-in to the community kind of went deeper. But when I came to Israel, um, I tried going to Chabad here and I was just like, whoa, this is, this is a different breed of, <laughs> of people. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, the Chabad Shul here starts at like 8.30 in the morning, which I think is against, it's got to be against some sort of Hasidic like <laughs> Yeah, I
1: know.
0: <laughs> but, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So it was just such a different breed of Chabad. It was such a different breed of people that I just didn't, it didn't ever feel comfortable. And then I went to Beis Chana, which was like so hardcore Chabad. And it was very Yerushalmi as well, which is another breed. So I just never really found my place in Israel at all in that community. I really, really struggled. And I felt really, really lost, I think, like after my parents made Aliyah. I also, when I lived in Manchester, I played football. I was very, I, I don't like the word tomboyish, but for this, it's a good way to explain it. I was never girly and I was never feminine. And I always played with the boys and I played football and cricket and I played on my bike the whole time. And I played it with the boys in the street. And then when we moved to Israel to Hanoff, some of it was like, you're not really supposed to ride your bike in the street at the age of 13, cause it's not safe. You know, and, and then it got to a point where I wasn't allowed to play with my brother and his friends anymore because I was older than them and they were bar mitzvah and, and it's not sneers anymore. So I kind of lost all that kind of what made me feel good about myself. It was all kind of taken away due to like religious constraints, I guess, because I wasn't sneers to do any of those things in Haranov and with my brother and his friends anymore because I was older than them.
0: Did you find that it's clear that like culturally that was a really jarring experience for you but I guess my question is like on a theological level like were you buying into this system and being like yeah I guess you know these are the rules and I'm not supposed to play with the boys anymore or or did you feel that there was some tension there as well?
1: I think I just went along with whatever I was told to do to be Uh honest. I don't I didn't feel like I had any agency. I was really like, I don't know. I was the good kid in the family. I went along with what my parents always wanted. And I just, it just is what it was. I just, I did it. Was there buy-in to it? I don't, I don't, I don't think there was buy-in to it. I never felt any joy in, in, or real connection, to be honest. And I. It was the path my family chose and it was the path that I went along with.
0: Mm-hmm. So you finish high school in Harnof. Then where do you go next?
1: So I went to SEM for a year to Chabad Sem Malachi. Um and I absolutely hated it. I spent a lot of my year in SEM at home doing music stuff because I I started playing drums when I was about 15 and I got involved with lots of different women's only bands in the very segregated film world that they have there. And I, I played I played for a few bands. So in my year during SEM, I spent as much time back in at my parents doing drumming stuff because um, I hated SEM. I also didn't fit in there. Everything felt like the SEM I was in was very much into they were either the like really hardcore Chabad girls that were really into their Chabad learning and everything, or there were the girls who got drunk every night or like tried to jump over the walls and go hang out with boys. And I I don't fit into any of these categories. So I kind of just did my own thing. I wasn't really Chabad and I didn't feel any connection, but but it was also, this is what you do. You go to Sam after you finish school, you know? I also, growing, going to Chabad in Israel, it was very much scripted of what you do next. So it really was, you go to one of the Chabad SEMs in Israel. So you either go to Tzfat for Chabad you do a degree in teaching for four years and then you become a teacher and you get married during this process and you have children. And that's what everybody did. And I didn't want to do that. So I went to an, an American Sem because you still go to Sem, you know, because that's what you do. So I went to an american sem where i didn't have to learn to be a teacher and yeah i didn't enjoy that year particularly and then and then after that i went on shlichus to in america um because that's also what you do after like you know you buy into the whole thing you finish them you go on shlichus. so i went on shlichus for three months in in America in pennsylvania and i really struggled with it i went to a place where i ended up having be a teacher of little kids and i
0: after after all that (laughs) to not be a teacher
1: exactly and i i knew that teaching was not my calling like i just did not want that responsibility also i think when i think about it now it's like how can i teach something that i don't have that real buy-in or authenticity to it you know when i think about it now it's like yeah, how can I give it across to someone else when my own authenticity doesn't feel that? So I, I didn't enjoy teaching and I left, I left Shlechas after three months and I went back home again. And then and then I had a job. I used to work as a dental nurse. So my dad's a dentist and from when I was 14, he trained me to be a dental nurse. And after school, because I was really, I didn't have a lot of friends in school because I just didn't click with anyone. So I used to go to work. So from 14 till 19, I worked as a dental nurse after school, like all different dentists. Um, so when I came back to Israel, I had a job in my father's surgery and I got a job straight away as a dental nurse and receptionist in in his surgery. And, and okay. then it, my parents, yeah, it was, I guess it didn't even occur to me, but obviously my parents were thinking of it like, Seduchin. I was 19 years old. It's no. Yeah. That's what we do.
0: Yeah, it is what we do. <laughs> um during that time, clearly you you weren't happy with I guess sort of the prescribed path that you were moving along. Um did you have any inkling to your own queer identity at that time or was it something that was still sitting at the edges
1: I had no idea it was so I can't even say it was sitting at the edges it was like somewhere else entirely what was what I was doing at that time which I found really interesting is I was really into like looking at I guess different images I was really interested in the male anatomy because I always, I never felt really feminine and I wanted to discover what, what a man is like, what a man's penis is, I suppose. And I really wanted to see if that kind of thing felt like it fit a little bit. So I was exploring that just on the internet with uh-huh. pictures and stuff like that. Like, and then mm-hmm. I used to like delete my history. So they really- <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and I, I was doing that a little bit at like 18, 19, just as, And I think that's what really I was struggling with at that time More was really, where does my gender, like how do I fit gender wise more than sexuality? I didn't have any idea about sexuality at all. And to be honest, I didn't have that much like concepts about gender either. It was just something that, that I was really interested in exploring. Um, so I was doing a bit of that and then, yeah,
0: I guess. So you're living at home and, and you're sort of beginning to explore this gender question. Aside from sort of looking at male anatomy and, and trying to understand that, like, did you have any questions that you were trying to answer or trying to respond to within yourself? Or was this just exploration?
1: I think it was something doesn't feel right. So I'm going to explore. Was it, Was I consciously... Did I consciously have questions? I did not consciously have questions. Mm -hmm. I think I didn't, there was just no narrative at all growing up, you know, it was such a, I grew up in such a heteronormative life and I went to such a hardcore from school that that wasn't even, yeah, there was just no narrative around it. There was no way to even, for me, there wasn't even any discussion and to be honest, if if there was discussion in my house about sex or, or gay, it was always like made fun of like, Oh my God, they're, like they're, they're gay or whatever. And it was like a slur in a way. It wasn't nice. So
0: this is another question that I've actually been enjoying asking people. Cause I think the answers are are really fascinating, which is sort of like, when did queer identities um, or, or different gender identities even, like, begin to enter your consciousness. Because I think growing up in the 21st century, like, even the most sheltered religious people, eventually it does kind of enter at some point. Um, so aside from, you know, your parents sort of mentioning things in, like, a negative context, do you have any recollection of when those concepts first sort of appeared in your life?
1: Probably in my twenties. Wow, I think like wow. properly. I mean, like there might have been like going, oh, that person is gay, but it wasn't even a something that I could attach any kind of meaning to because I didn't really understand it as a concept. So I think, yeah, in my twenties, maybe after I was married and had children
0: already. Okay, so so let's get there. So you start Shidduchim. <laughs> Um.
1: so I I didn't even start what happened was my sister, my twin sister at the time was becoming less religious and my parents wanted to marry her off because she was becoming less religious as one does Mm -hmm. and I remember this so clearly that I was in the bath and my mum was on the phone to to somebody that we knew and she was talking to them and saying to them do you have a a shidduch for, for my sister and I remember them going no actually we have a shidduch for Judith, that's how I used to go by Judith and then I changed my name to Jude recently um and I remember getting out the bath and my mom going to me so I've been speaking to this person and and they've got someone who they want you to like we've got someone for you to meet and I was like I don't want to go on a date I don't want to go to shit. Ugh, I don't want to meet anyone no absolutely
0: not did you say that
1: I was like yeah no I don't want to okay And my mom was like, no, just go out, you'll have a good time. You know, it doesn't have to be serious. You know, you can just have fun with a guy. What you you got to lose? Just go out with him. So I I said, said fine, but I'm not changing what I'm wearing. And I'm wearing clothes that I feel comfortable in. And I'm not putting makeup on. And I'm just, I'm not doing any of those things. I used to dress like as much or as least feminine as possible, I used to literally wear long denim skirts and like hoodies every single day because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be feminine. I didn't want to wear flowers. didn't want to wear makeup. I didn't really want it to be scripted into this female body. Um, so I was like, I'm not, not wearing makeup and I'm not wearing a fancy dress and heels and I'm just not doing that kind of thing. I'll wear whatever I want. So eventually after this, a lot of persuasion, I was like, okay, fine. So he came to Israel and we went out for four days straight and every day after every day, it was like, so are you going to go out with him again? You need to make a decision. You can't just go out once. You have to go out again because how can you make a decision after one time? So there was like so much pressure to go out again and go out again and go out again. And because he was in in Israel, he flew from England. It was very concentrated with no time to process what was going on at all, apart from pressure. Are you having a good time? Go out again. Like whether you want to do it or not, you have to go out again and then for so then four days it was like Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and Thursday he flew back to England and and then there was a discussion are you going to go to England on Sunday to carry on dating with like to -hmm. date you need to decide whether you're going to go or not and you need to decide now so I was really like a lot of pressure into going to England
0: yeah I mean that's not even like time to process what
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, there was no time to process anything. It was like boom, 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 boom. You have to decide what you want to do. I also had a job that I had a commitment to. So I had to be in, in in Israel, like the week later, I had to be in Israel for my job. And I think about it now. And I think, so what I had to be in Israel for my job a week later, you know, it could have, so we didn't go out for a whole week after a week or two weeks and we went out bit and then we had a bit of a break and we had a bit of time to process what was going on and then we dated after that you know would that have been a big deal no it wouldn't have been a big deal but then it was like you have to decide now so i ended up flying to england on sunday and we went out on sunday and then we went out on monday and then tuesday he took me to paris and he proposed
0: were Uh, you were you aware like did the shotgun let you know or was this uh
1: no i had absolutely no idea we were like on a river on a boat and he just like proposed and i was like uh yeah sure okay like who has time to even think about processing and then after that he's like okay we're going now to seven we're gonna get back to england and we're taking a plane straight away and we're going to new york and i was like okay so it's like this whole whirlwind like we he'd taken me to paris he'd yeah. And then he proposed in the middle of the river and there's all these people watching and it's like, oh my God, like, I, do I, I don't really want to get married. Do I really want to get married? Do I even have in like, you have like 10 seconds to think, do I want this? Do I not want this? Do I even know what I want? Any, like, do I know what I want? Everything's been such a crazy whirlwind that I do not even know what I wanted. And I just ended up being like, yeah, okay. And, um, then I was engaged. Um, yeah, it was mad.
0: Wow. That that is really mad. (laughs) You just reminded me before my partner and I got engaged, there was like a lot of discussion um, about, you know, how a proposal between two women should work and like what that was gonna look like. And I just told her, I was like, if you propose to me in public anywhere, I'm saying no. I might really wanna marry you, like that's fine. But like, if you do it in public, you're gonna be the one embarrassed, not me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just is, it's just another added pressure, you know, of something that's already pressured, really.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, yeah. And then we got married three months later.
0: And did but you see it, each other at all during that time?
1: Yeah, we sh- we saw each other twice for like a few, maybe hours in England for a week. And then he came to Israel for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. We saw each other twice during that time but it was it was mad it was intense and um it was i don't even know and it, then i it was like i had to i remember going for this dress fitting and it was the, it was such an awful thing for me um this dress fitting because it was another really female thing to do having to wear this wedding dress and i remember going to my mom i hate it and i want the most plainest thing possible, no lace, no puffiness, no any like just wanted something so simple because I it just felt so alien to me, this experience of having to wear a wedding dress. Um so yeah, and then and then I got married in England because he wanted to get married in England so all his friends could come and his community. Um so I didn't even get married in Israel, I got married, we got married in England. Um, and then I ended up living in England with him, because that's, he was, he was a community rabbi, and so I moved to London to be where he did.
0: Okay, so all this happens within the space of, like, three months, four months that, like, you meet, you know, from phone call while you're in the bath, through living in London, married to a community rabbi did you have any thoughts um, or feelings either about your gender identity or queer identity or, you know, about the religious component of your life during this time of, like, really great change and upheaval?
1: Um, definitely not about gender identity or, or sexuality at all. Um, definitely about religious stuff. In a way, it was like, I think it was how can I be authentic or how, what, what I think what I really struggled with through all these years was authenticity that I'd never felt authentic. And I was thrown into a community role as a Robinson where I had, where everyone has these certain expectations of you, knowledge and expectations and, and beliefs. And I never, and I suppose I felt really under par, for want of a better word, because I didn't have them. So I felt like a fraud constantly. Without even realising that I felt like a fraud, I realised this so much later. But then I just knew that I was really, really uncomfortable with what I was portraying all the time, whether it be that I had to wear a shade or So gender, I suppose, gender-wise, it was fitting into more, it, it, it was this constant struggle of having to fit more and more into female gender roles. So being a Revertson was another female gender role and I had to wear a shade and it's like you wear a shade tool, So I'd lost the hair like I wanted. So I had to put on a shade tool, and that for me was really feminine and it was a really feminine thing to do. And it was, and I had to wear certain clothes that fitted the role as well. So that I suppose thinking about it, if you ask me about gender stuff that was really hard for me gender wise, but was I consciously aware of? It being hard because I struggled with my gender identity? No.
0: I mean, that makes sense. Like, if you if you hadn't had the opportunity to, or even the language, to really think about those things, then, of course, it's not something that's going to be at the forefront. Have you ever heard of Urban Goffman? No. Okay, he's a social theorist, and he talks... He's famous because of like impression management, which is something that like we use in like regular speech now, but he was the first one to come up with the theory about how people, you know, have like a front stage and a backstage when they're in any interactions and even sometimes when they're alone and by themselves. And um, the way that you described that sort of brought to mind the idea of we have the essential self, which is the self that puts on all these masks of, you know, student or sister or brother um and and it seemed to me like you had sort of internalized all of these messages about the kind of mask that you needed to wear um and yeah. it just didn't fit
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think that started when I was a young child actually and it just continued as I grew older that these are masks that uh, this is how I'm expected to be. So this is the mask I'm going to wear. And this is how I'm going to fit in everyone else's expectations of me.
0: You mentioned that when you were had to become the wife of the community rabbi, you had to dress a certain way. How was that communicated to you?
1: It was communicated by, by my ex who said, I expect you to be a certain way now. I expect mm-hmm. you to dress a certain way now. Also by like, we're Chabad and we wear shaitos and, you know, because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And whereas, and, and actually it's really interesting in the community that I was in, it was a very old established English community. And like for sure, you had to wear a hat on top of your shatel because, because so that people didn't think you weren't covering your hair in short. And I remember the first Rosh Hashanah there, my mom took me before Rosh Hashanah to buy these fancy, you know, these really, really fancy hats. Mm-hmm. and I remember having to I remember putting this hat on this really really fancy hat and thinking what <laughs> the hell is this <laughs> like who is this person wearing this ridiculous it was this gray like like organza fancy hat and I which I'm wearing on top of a shaito which is long which I hate wearing anyway because I detested to and, and, I, and I remember looking at myself going like what on earth like who is this person that I'm looking at in the mirror I do not have any idea who this person is and I refuse to wear this hat again like I'm not doing it Mm -hmm. um it just didn't happen but yeah and it was yeah community expectation my ex's expectation and just this is how you're supposed to be this is how you're supposed to dress as a someone in a role
0: so you're living in London, you are the Rabbitson with the chaisel, with or without the hat. And what happens next in your story?
1: I suppose what happens is I become pregnant with my first daughter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I had relatively regular pregnancy, apart from the fact that when people say morning sickness, it was morning, day, night, anytime, all day, constantly nausea so it wasn't great it wasn't a great experience for me
0: (laughs) (laughs) no it does not sound like it
1: (laughs) no it was not I really really struggled with being pregnant and feeling nauseous I also have a phobia of vomit so the nausea was like it was anxiety provoking for me all the time because of my phobia so that didn't really kind of help my mental health I suppose but um and I'd already like got in touch with people. Like I got in touch with, with friends. And I was like, I'm really unhappy. This was like in the beginning of my marriage already. I was like, I'm really unhappy and I don't want to be here. And they were like, well, you know, this is normal. It's new. You just got married. You have to stick it out. So, and then I got pregnant. So I was like, shit, I'm like, I'm pregnant now. And I can't do anything about it. So I'm in it because nobody ever said to me, you could take birth control. Like it wasn't, It wasn't an option at that time. Take birth control, give yourself a bit of time, don't get pregnant. So I had a baby. So I had, so 11 months after I got married, I was, I had my first daughter, I was 20 years old and had a baby. Wow. Um, so yeah. And then I just, it's more losing myself because it's more being in that more, it's another role. I suppose it was another mask that I had to put on. Now it's the mask of mom, which is another female mask.
0: Which I have to say, even for the best and healthiest and like most self-aware of circumstances, putting on that role as parent for the first time is a very difficult transition. So I can't imagine that while you're living under the stress of trying to just figure yourself out and live who you are um having to add on you know the sleepless nights and and the social expectations that come along with that
1: yeah there was like lots of social expectations that you have to breastfeed and that lasted about six weeks and then I'm like I'm not doing this anymore that that was just another it was just another pressure for me and it was just another yeah, a mask is a really good word. It was an, it was another way of being that didn't feel like me. I guess.
0: Out of curiosity, were you the the first in your family to get married? Yeah. Okay. Because um, I realized you said that the shidduch was originally for your twin sister, but uh, it, got, it got passed down to you. <laughs> uh huh.
1: Yeah, she never got married. She <laughs> became not religious and got married in her thirties. Whatever. She, mm-hmm. she made her own path mm-hmm. but um yeah I was the first person to get married um mm-hmm. so I have a, a daughter and I guess I struggled through that and then we moved to back to Israel actually when she was nine months we moved to Israel where my ex wanted to finish his smicha so we moved to a Kralel in mm-hmm. which was lovely I loved the environment in the coil just because there were other people to talk to um And there were some lovely, lovely families there.
0: I'm sure other young mothers as well, who were probably going through their own shit.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There was was lots of young people doing the same thing that I was. Um,
0: Was your family still in Israel at that time?
1: No, my family had already moved back to England. My family moved back to England when I got married. Mm -hmm. So no, but my sister, my twin sister, at that time had moved also moved back to Israel to live for a little bit. she mm-hmm. was she had come to England and she went back to Israel, so she was there and then i when my daughter was one, I got pregnant again because you only get a heer for a year for birth control. By that time, I did have a header to have birth control, so I got pregnant again and um yeah, and then and then I had another baby nine months later, so it was another. It's just, it was just more of the mask on top of anxiety of being a parent on top of a sick phobia of a child who used to throw up randomly all the time. My oldest, my oldest, she had this trigger, which took me a while to realize that if she drank anything sweet, she would throw up because her stomach couldn't take. So she'd drink like Shoko in Gan in Israel. They would give you Shoko all the time. She used to throw up all the time from Shoko because she just, her body couldn't tolerate, couldn't tolerate it. So she wasn't like, she was poorly, it just rejected whatever was going in it. But as someone who has a phobia of vomit, it's really quite anxiety provoking when you never know when your child is going to grow up.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs)
1: Um, And then, so then my second one was born and she was in and out of hospital because she was always sick with just random stuff, but she was always sick. And then when she was six months, we moved back to England where my ex took up a job as a community rabbi in a place called Birmingham, hmm. um, which is a small community in England. And he was a, communi- he was a community rabbi there and I became the reverendson. And then- Again. Again, yeah. And this time it was like even more pressure because in London, he was, he was assistant rabbi. He wasn't the main rabbi. Whereas in Birmingham, he was the main rabbi and I was the main reverendson. So it was my short, and I had, and there was expectations of me, like having guests all the time or doing children's services and teaching Kheide sometimes. So there was, yeah, expectations started, I suppose. And and that was another mask and another way of losing my authenticity.
0: Going back into this role after having had, um, I guess, I don't know if it was a break because you had two children in between and you had moved countries, but after having um, some space where you didn't have to be in that role, what what was it like going back into that? Did you have different thoughts now that you sort of knew what it was going to be like?
1: No, I just knew that we, I mean, the only reason why we went to Israel was to come back to do that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I had a choice to go, no, I don't want to do this. It was him and his life and his job and i'd kind of signed up for it when i married him like unwittingly unknowingly signed up for for it and not really know what i signed up for but that was kind of part of the parcel along with this is what you, you're like you're my you're my wife you have to be my supported relative and i'm going to be the rabbi and we continue to have kids because that's what we do is live from chabad couple and rabbi you have children and you do the mitzvah and also that i didn't have a boy so you know he's always i want to have a boy um so i just yeah just kind of carried on and then i was more and more lost for want of a better word like i had no idea By so she was my second daughter was born when i was 22. um i mean I had two kids, I was a Reviton, I was lost beyond lost, having this pressure of constantly being a reverend in a community where I had to talk and be out there. And And I'm actually, I'm a lot less shy now than I was then, but I was very shy. So I found it really hard to just engage with people. It, it didn't come natural, natural small talk. Didn't, it, it just wasn't there for me. So it was really hard for me to have to be in a communal role um and then and then i guess and then for about three, three and a bit years later i got pregnant with my third daughter It took me a while to get pregnant i had lots of bleeding issues and stuff and i didn't get pregnant for a long time and um, yeah then i got pregnant with my third daughter and during that pregnancy i suffered from really bad depression in pregnancy um and I I think I had a bit of postnatal depression after my second daughter, which was undiagnosed. And then the minute I got so, I'd never really healed from that postnatal depression for the three years that I was not pregnant and I was struggling with a daughter. My second daughter was always, I was in and out of hospital with her the whole time and constantly having to go to A&E with her and constantly having to deal with my phobia in my face all the time. And it was, a huge buildup of anxiety. And then I got pregnant and suffered from really bad depression in my pregnancy. And I also had a very difficult pregnancy and, um, and then after she was born, I had really bad postnatal depression, which was undiagnosed for a long time. I was also afraid to, I was afraid to reach out to anyone because of the community role. So I was afraid to say I'm struggling and this is how I'm feeling because of the expectation on me as somebody who is in a community. So it took a really long time for me to have the courage to like i would say when she was about seven maybe nine months where i finally went to my doctor and was like i don't know what to do i i just i'm really really struggling and i just don't feel right um, and then i went to some i went to see a counselor in my doctor's surgery and they were like no i just think you're bored she literally said to me i just think you're bored and there's anything wrong with you but i'll help you with your phobia
0: this is your um family doctor?
1: Yeah, this so it wasn't the family doctor that said it, but in England in GP in the family doctor surgery, they refer you to counsel they can refer you mm-hmm. to counseling on the NHS. So who whoever they referred me to said this to me. I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with you, I just think you're bored and I'll help you with your phobia. So I'll teach you some EFT, which is kind of tapping, which will help your anxiety. So she did that for a little bit and and then she left. And then I saw another counselor who said to me, I think there's way more going on than just this phobia, like there's way more stuff and she referred us, she referred me to go to marriage counseling with my ex um, and, and then when we saw, so this time we saw like proper therapists. So we thought it was two therapists and I, and I said to the, and she said, one of them said to me, you definitely have postnatal depression. There's no way you don't have postnatal depression. And even that was like it was like somebody had finally heard me that was nice and and i also said to them during the therapy can you please tell him to stop pressuring me to have another kid by this time my daughter was probably about 2 and i'd had this constant pressure when are we going to have another child and i by this point i'd put my foot down and i was like i'm not having another child at least i'd taken a little bit of agency and i was like no more children i can't deal with any more children i'm really yeah, I was just lost, I guess. And then we moved to London, where my daughter was two and a half. Um, to another role as Rabbi Robertson.
0: From that first moment where you see the second counselor and they say, you know, I think that there's more going on here. Do you remember what your response was to that? Was it? relief or fear or
1: I think it was probably a bit of both to be honest it was in a way some sort of acknowledgement I didn't know what was going on for me but it was some sort of acknowledgement that there's something else Mm -hmm. you know and there's not something like that that I'm missing here I guess
0: or that tapping can take care of or
1: or that tapping can take care (laughs) of yeah because it did not take care of it um yeah so then we moved to london and then he took up a, another role in a big community it was a really big community in um in london and then um, i just said to him like i i want to go to life coaching because i i need to find something for myself i need to discover who i am by this point i was 29 and i had these like i suppose my whole life of not knowing who i was and i was more and more lost and I saw this advert for life coach on a Facebook group, I think. And I was like, I want to, I want to go to life coaching. So I started life coaching and, and in life coaching, I remember my life coach, like through hypnotherapy, a bit of hypnotherapy and whatever. And one day she brought a big mirror into the coaching and she said, I want you to look at yourself and really look at yourself in the mirror. And what do you see? And I was like, oh maybe I think I'm gay, like whatever, through the journey. And that, that came out through the life coaching. Right.
0: Wait, so can you say a bit more about that? Like you're standing with a mirror in front of you and, and I guess, what are the thoughts that lead you to make that statement? Um, I
1: don't know, actually what I think, at that time I I was already noticing that I was a bit more attracted to women and that I had I did started to develop feelings for someone that I knew um and and I think through talking about that and through what was really interesting every time I went to life coaching I I took my I sat in the room and I took my hat off I was like I'm not wearing a hat in here This is not me this is not authentic it's coming off so I I never covered my hair during the sessions because it just didn't feel it didn't feel like me authentically, and um, and I think just through exploring that and exploring what what felt comfortable and and realizing that actually I am attracted to to women. Um, led me to the realization that actually I'm gay and 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 I'm attracted to the same gender or sex or
0: uh, yeah so you have this realization and how did that feel coming to that realization
1: I think it felt really scary and I was like, what do I do with this now? Like, okay, this is what I've realized what what's next. And I didn't really, I didn't think too much more about it actually, because then I went home and I told my ex that I, that I realized I'm gay. And he said to me, "Oh, I want a divorce.
0: Like same night.
1: Yep. Yep. I'm gay. He said, I want a divorce straight away.
0: Did you think that going into that conversation, that was a possible outcome?
1: No, not at all. I was just sharing with him what I would discovered. Um, I also didn't think it was a possible outcome because we had been and we were in marriage counseling together. And he constantly said, I don't want to get divorced. I don't want to get divorced. I don't want to get divorced. I never want to get divorced. And then I came back from this life coaching and I said, oh, I think I'm gay. And he's like, I want to get divorced so yeah that's kind of what happened next so we separated within about two months we separated and i moved out of my fa- i moved out of the house where he stayed with the kids because it was a short house so i moved out and i ended up staying with a friend around the corner for three months
0: aside from your ex did you talk to anyone else about I mean obviously the separation I think is one thing there's some obvious facts on the ground there but but the realization that you had come to
1: I spoke to one person Mm -hmm. one friend who's the friend that I actually ended up sleeping in her place for three months but apart from her no I didn't tell anyone else about it Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to, to process it to be honest on top of the fact that now I was suddenly separated suddenly separated and having to deal with all the anxiety around that. I never, I really didn't want to be married or have children. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, you have to leave. And then it was like, shit, how am I going to be a single parent with all my phobia and all my anxiety? And I couldn't even be at home alone really with the kids because I was afraid if they threw up, who was going to look after them. So I constantly had help. So all of a sudden I was thrust into this, oh my God, I've got to be a single parent and look after my kids all by myself, how am I going to manage it? so that was so much bigger than oh my than I discovered I was gay at the time to be honest
0: yeah, it brings to mind what you were saying when you were you know 18 19 and just moved home and are starting to explore these questions about your gender identity and then suddenly you're thrown into shidduchim and marriage and moving and and everything that comes along with that and here you just start to like move into this space of I'm gay what does that mean for me and immediately you're thrown into this role of I'm a single parent now I need to deal with the separation um
1: yeah that's a lot (laughs) that's that's exactly what happened and so I had to deal with that and at that time I decided to leave life coaching and I started going to therapy right around the time I separated and I started Really going through a journey of self-discovery in therapy. And actually, I think it's interesting what you say. I was like thrown into marriage and thrown into parenthood. And I think the only, the real, what really helped me discover myself was after I'd, so we separated in March and after my kid, and then in July, I got my own place. And then after my, my kids were like half, half living with me, half living with my ex for the next seven eight months and i went actually in february the following year so it's about nine months later someone said to me i was so lost like in anxiety in stress i was not like my kids were really anxious i was really anxious and I, i just was not coping with anything and i went someone said to me come with me to to a single base, base Hannah in America, in Minnesota, run the the single
0: Manus Friedman retreat. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: Said, said to me, come to this retreat in Minnesota. And I was like, uh, they were like, we'll get, we'll pay for your ticket. We'll pay for the place. Just, just come. So I, I went to this retreat and I ended up speaking to one of the, she's a life coach to someone there. And I said to her, I am, I'm struggling. So I didn't actually go to any of the classes. I couldn't, Take sitting in any of the classes I literally spent the whole time in my room or in the kitchen with the chef chatting to the person who cooked and then I spoke to like the life and I ended up having lots of conversations with this life coach who I still keep in touch with today she's amazing and and I said to her I'm just not coping and she said to me why don't you ask your ex if the kids can live with him like it's not the end of the world if your kids live with their father while you Work while you yourself
0: deal, out a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah, while you deal with your anxiety and stuff. So that for me was like the first time someone had said to me, you're allowed some time for you. like, And you don't have to be, you don't have to listen to everyone else's pressures that you're a parent and you have to be a parent and you have to look after your kids. And she literally was like, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say I need a break. It's okay to find some space for yourself and it was a real revelation for me that someone had said that to me and i was 30 31 no i was i think i was 31 by that time and i was like wow i'm 31 years old and someone said to me you can take a break so i came back from minnesota and i said to my ex i'm just not coping please can the kids live with you and he actually agreed and they moved into him full time and I saw, I saw them every weekend, but they weren't actually living with me. And then I really started the journey of self-discovery through therapy. And I I went through what I call a rebirthing process, even where I, I had to spend, I spent about a week being held in water, like my friend literally got into the bath with me, we were in our swimming costumes and I just needed to be in this water and have the experience of being in water and, and through that, I started to also, I started wearing trousers more and that like out and about. And I, then I got my get and I stopped covering my hair and I started cutting it the way that felt a bit more authentic to me. And I started taking these slow, slow steps of finding what was authentic to me. Um and and I did it in therapy like I wore trousers for the first time with my therapist and then I wore trousers out and about a bit more and then I started to build courage a little bit to be out in the streets and feel more authentic as myself Um, and I think through that journey of wearing trousers out and about and being able to dress the way I wanted it was being able to dress the way I wanted was the first time that my inner and outer kind of matched each other and I was showing my authenticity to the world I guess and that was hugely powerful for me to be able to do that.
0: You started your your story with talking about you know a five-year-old Jude and they're suddenly expected to stop wearing trousers and to start wearing skirts um, so it's almost like you are sort of picking up where that Jude left off
1: Yeah. Only almost 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And and through that journey, I, I started, I suppose I, I started really discovering more of my own gender, and more of my own gender expression. And also through that journey, I started I started becoming more comfortable with telling people that I was gay. I, fa- I still found it really hard. Um, I was really afraid. And and at the same time, people were already making assumptions about me because of the way I dressed.
0: There are a few things that you mentioned that I I'd love if we could sort of dive into a little bit more. The first one is, you are wearing trousers and you're not covering your hair and was there a religious voice in any of that like did you have any part of you that was thinking about that in religious terms or was that not in the room you know like in the room of when jude is making their decisions was religion a voice in the room
1: religion was a voice in the room still and and the voice of me needing to find myself was stronger okay there was definitely, uh, you're not really supposed to wear trousers because you're a woman and it's not sneers. And, and 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 I couldn't stop and I didn't want to stop the power that I was learning to be within myself to feel authentic. So I, I didn't kind of listen to it, I suppose. I still, I mean, I still went to shore I still went to shore and I still put a skirt on and I still for a while I still covered my hair when I went to shore and I put a hat on because I was married.
0: Was that something and, that you cared about or was that something that you were doing because of your kids or familial expectations or?
1: Some of it was for my kids I think. Some mm-hmm. of it was I was trying to find a new community um, and yeah, some of it was I was trying to find a new community and how do I find a new community without going to shul? Um, and I went to Chabad shul because that was a community that I knew. So I moved to a different area and I went to Chabad shul.
0: Okay, not the same shore that your ex was running.
1: No, no, not at all. Not <laughs> okay. at all the same shit. That That's for another story. I was banned from going to that one. But um, so, yeah, I did go to shore, and sometimes like... Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, I still went to shul because it was really meaningful for me. The the davening of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur has always been really meaningful. So, and the Chagayim, I still went to shul for that because it was meaningful. But then it got to a point where my religion and my gay identity did not fit together anymore. Because I, I didn't, it got to a point where having to put on a skirt felt less and less authentic, therefore going to a shawl that was really segregated became more and more difficult. And having to go back to that and having to put on a skirt because that's what you do when you go to a shawl that's orthodox felt harder and harder. And I felt more and more lost in that process of having to connect with Judaism in that way, I guess. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely chronologically when is this happening so you're divorced at 31 and you're starting to take steps to discover what what is authentic to you and to you know begin to move through the world like that could you take me through the timeline of how you move from there to where you are today
1: yeah so i guess it was a slow process over a few years so i left my kids when i was 31 at their dad's although still looking after them and slowly slowly as i started to find myself more through the years my kids started coming living with me more and more and i started to be a stronger parent and a more authentic parent and it took i mean i don't have like a chronological timeline for everything but then I guess I started wearing trousers more. And, and at one point when I started wearing trousers, my kids were like, please don't do it in front of us, in front of our school or in front of our friends because they were really embarrassed because they were still in a Chabad schools, And it was embarrassing to have a parent who looked different. Yeah, And um, it was it, I didn't do it as like one big process. I, I really took my time to really do what felt authentic to me over the time. And I guess by the time I got to... 34 maybe 34 34 and a half I I came out to my kids and I told them I was gay and they were like yeah we know already um they were like yeah we know next like they I I probably waited a bit too long to tell them um (laughs) because I was already dressing really masculine I suppose I was wearing shirts and I was wearing more baggy trousers I was not and I was wearing boys clothes I did not shop in the women's section anymore Mm -hmm. unless I had to put on a skirt to go to shore um and then and then actually a really big pivotal moment for me was not last maybe three years ago in Yom Kippur and I went to shore Chabad shore because that's where I went when my kids were with me um i went to Chabad shaw and i sat in Shul, called nidre and i sat there with my skirt on i didn't have my hair covered i sat there with my skirt on and i literally couldn't stop crying through the whole davening and i sat there thinking why why have i been made a certain way if this is against halacha and against the Torah, and and why do i have to conform and lose myself and lose my identity to fit within the realms of prescribed halacha that has been told to me. And also, to go further than that is, I was always brought up via love your fellow Jew. And, and there's so much of this, we're not going to love you if you present differently and if you don't conform. And it just didn't fit. And it made me so angry and so sad that I sat in shul like on Yom Kippur Kol Nidre, and I couldn't open a master, I couldn't daven, and I just sat there crying. And my kids were sitting next to me, and I just couldn't stop crying. And I left shul on Kol Nidre. And I, I was really, really distressed, actually, like how just Really struggling with how can both how can I fit my worlds together? Like, do I religiously do I want to feel connected? Do I want to be connected? But I really this very deep need inside of me to be authentic. And and I left Shul Kondigre and I went back. I went back for Na'ila, and I sat there reading a book. I didn't dabble I just went back and I sat because I went back with my kids and I sat there reading a book. And from then on. I've never worn a skirt again. And I decided that I am going to be my authentic self wherever I am. So whether I'm in Shaw or whether I go to my kid's school that was from or wherever I am, you either take me as you are or you don't take me at all. And, And I took power, I suppose. And I was like, this is me, this is my authentic self. And you can either respect that rabbis, any, whoever, respect me, or I'm just going to remove myself and not come back again. And and I did that.
0: And what has the reaction been?
1: Mostly the reaction's been, you are who you are, and we respect you for being who you are. I have an amazing connection with the rabbi of the Chabad community, who constantly tells me that he's learned so much from me. He has learned to embrace different people different sexualities i mean he not necessarily publicly but very much privately and he has lots of conversations privately with people i come to i come to shore he always if i go to shore which i don't go to shore very often anymore i i don't like going to shore i also it's not my community because the community members really still struggle they are like they just don't get it and they I look different and they don't know how to respond to that. But from the top, the rabbi, every time I would go into shore, every time my kids come into shore, he makes an effort to come to us to say, hi to us. We're like, he has told me and his wife that we're like family. And his kids have told me that we're like family. And, and he spoke, he spoke about, he spoke at my daughter's bat mitzvah two weeks ago. And he said, you're amazing. And I'm so proud of you for having such a voice and, there's so much courage. And and it, I think authenticity breeds respect, to be honest. And the more authentic you are, the more people see that and respect you for it. As long as you do it respectfully, as long as you're respectful, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It makes me so happy to hear. Like, that's just so deeply, deeply touching and and I, I'm glad that you've managed to find a space where you can be yourself. Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm happy, yeah.
0: Okay, which I guess brings us to today. What are you up to today?
1: Today I am I am starting to share my voice, I suppose, yeah. is what I'm doing. I'm, I think what's for me what's really important is that people know that living authentically is never wrong. Like living your authentic true self as an out, proud, queer Jew, whatever that means to anyone, everyone has their own meaning to that. And but but if you live that authentically with pride and with joy and with happiness, then it's not wrong. It's it's actually it's it's amazing. And it's so powerful to be able to live that truth and to live your truth. And how can how can something that is powerful and true and authentic actually be against what Hashem wanted us to be?
0: Um, I think that that's a question that everybody um, is forced to ask themselves. And the answers that I received from a lot of people around me were that you can't, that, that the answer to that is that it's not possible. And there's a contradiction that you need to resolve and that that's it. But I, my personal take on it is that sometimes it's okay to sort of live in the space between to lean into the dissonance
1: a hundred percent i think i think sometimes it's the only space to lean into because because how how can you live your life i mean i can't tell you that sometimes i don't have conflict i do have conflict about it and at the same time i don't want to live my life in a constant state of conflict so the only other choice is to lean in to the gray and to yeah. be with the gray so i straddle worlds so, so i straddle the from world i straddle the queer world my kids are some are from some are not so from and i and we bring in a mix of of everything to how what feels right for me as a person and for me and my family
0: do you think that these kind of realizations about yourself, do you think it would have played out better or differently if you were not part of the religious world?
1: I haven't, I, I really don't know. And I, I don't know if I'd even want to know however hard and challenging my life has been. I would not be the person I am today without going through those experiences. And I'm really, really proud of myself and my experiences and how I've, grown and become the person I am today. So yeah, maybe it would have been less challenging. And maybe I wouldn't have had to go through so much heartache and pain and struggle of self. But then would I be who I am today is the question. And, and I, I love who I am today. And I'm really proud to be an out proud queer Jew. So would I change anything? I don't not really because this is me now
0: well um for people starting off on their journey who I hope will stumble across this podcast somehow somewhere out there um what would you say to a young Jude what words of wisdom would you like to take with you on the way if you could
1: um I think two things one thing is try and find if it's not all of you that can be authentic at the time find pieces of yourself that you can feel authentic with because that just builds power and you get to be authentic in one bit and then you get to be authentic somewhere else and then slowly that builds up the puzzle of who you are in your authenticity and the and living truly authentically only brings you power to be more authentic and to be more true to yourself So just find those bits in yourself that really feel like are your authentic self. And the second is find those people close to you who you can trust to help build the power as well. Know who they are, be with them, and on the same scale, don't engage or put strong boundaries with those people that are not healthy and that don't build you up because they're never going to support who you are totally and therefore you you always have doubts when you hear doubts of others it brings doubts into yourself i guess so that's really what i would recommend that what i would suggest to somebody really starting on their journey just find little snippets of who you are and build on them
0: well thank you so much jude it was really fascinating to hear your story and certainly a lot for me to take out of it so i hope that others will get the same
1: you're really very welcome.
0: That concludes today's episode. We want to thank Jude again for being so generous with their time and for sharing their story with us. Jude's story has also been featured on Queer Community Mag, link in the description, and they can be found on Instagram at Jude, J-A-C, Rose. If you have a story that you'd like to share, or if there are topics that you would like covered, please reach out to us by visiting QueerYid.com.